now, The Good Fight with Yasha Monk. Hi, my name is Melvin Russell. I'm a retired police chief with Baltimore City Police Department, where I spent just about my entire adult life, almost 40 years. And during that span, I've seen a lot of things, and I've been in policing and love policing, but I've seen a paradigm shift in policing from when I started to when I concluded my career. And I got to tell you, it was a lot better when I was started. Policing has changed over the decades, and I'm not necessarily saying for the better. And because of that, I was just push to write an article. So I wrote my first article and actually it got published by Persuasion Online Magazine. And so I'm asking you to go to Persuasion Magazine and actually look up the article, Police Reform Joineth. In other words, join the police. And one of the things, the most greatest paradigm shift that I've seen over the course of my career was when I started growing up in poverty communities throughout Baltimore City, all my communities were considered villages. Everybody helped out, even the police. Everybody was part of the community. And that was not the same by the time I was retiring. So I think it's thought-provoking. I don't know what you might think, but I will welcome, welcome your feedback. Please check the article out. Again, go on per- Persuasion Online Magazine and check out Police Reform. Join it. Join the police. And with that, I want you to have an amazing day. God bless you. Chief Melvin T. Russell's piece called To Reform the Police, Join It was published by Persuasion. To learn more about the community we're building at Persuasion and to get similar articles directly into your inbox, head to www.persuasion.community. My guest today is Radosław Sikorski. Radek is currently a member of the European Parliament. He was previously both Minister of Defense and a Minister of Foreign Affairs for his native country, Poland, where he is one of the leading voices of the opposition to the populist government led by law and justice. We had a really interesting conversation about the situation in Ukraine and its larger geopolitical implications. It helped me understand what the nature of the military conflict is at the moment, what things look like on the ground. It helped me think through some of the broader geopolitical implications of the relative unity of the West in confronting Putin. And it also gave me a little bit more optimism than I had before the conversation about whether it might be realistic to come to a negotiated settlement in large part thanks to the brave resistance of the Ukrainian forces with which both sides might somehow be able to live. Radek Sikorski, welcome to the podcast. Hello. You used to be not just foreign secretary of Poland, but also defense minister. You know, as we're recording this on Wednesday, the war has been going on for a number of weeks. And I have to say that I found it increasingly hard to understand what is actually happening on the ground. In the first few days, it was very easy to follow the changes. In the last week or so, I found it hard to actually assess just what the status quo is. Again, this is Wednesday, it's going to air in a few days, but as of right now, how to describe just the military situation in Ukraine? We are actually talking exactly during President Zelensky's speech to the Joint Houses of Congress. And that fact alone tells you a great deal about the military situation, namely that the president of Ukraine, who was supposed to be denazified within three days, is still in his presidential palace and, in fact, is addressing world leaders, which means that the original plan of the Russian incursion 
has spectacularly failed. And does that give you hope that Ukraine will be able to hold Russia off for as long as it takes to come to a negotiated settlement? Or do you think that eventually the overwhelming Russian forces in terms of just military apparel and manpower and so on will likely vanquish the resistance? Ukraine has been attacked from three directions, from Belarus, trying to go for Kiev, from the east at the city of Kharkiv and beyond, and in the south. And only one city in the south has been captured. And even where the Russians are present, they are really present only on the roads and where they have direct military bearing, because the Ukrainian population has turned out to be uniformly hostile. More than that, for a number of days, the Russian offensive is not uh, progressing. They are bogged down on the far outskirts of Kiev. They have not even taken the city of Mariupol or even Kharkiv, which is only 40 kilometers from Russia's border. And Putin seems to have committed almost all his active professional army to this operation. He's still bringing up some reinforcements from Chechnya, from Syria, from some mercenaries. But it looks like uh, he's stuck. So the option is either to mobilize the population for total war or to negotiate. Negotiations seem to be progressing. First couple of times in Belarus now, I understand, um, remotely. And from what uh, Russian officials are telling us is that Russia has dramatically scaled down its level of ambition. Instead of denazification which is absurd, <laughs> given that Zelensky is a democratically elected Jewish president of Ukraine, and demilitarization, which meant basically taking over Ukraine, they now say that they have nothing against uh, Zelensky staying on, and by demilitarization, they just mean a non-aligned status, which of course is also absurd, because Ukraine has been and is non-aligned. So the fact that a measure of realism is coming into the Russian position would suggest that they realize that they're not winning. So what would a settlement like that look like? Putin will need to justify the war domestically in some kind of way. He will need to be able to claim victory in some way. Otherwise, it's hard to imagine him accepting a settled negotiation. Well, I wouldn't worry about Putin's credibility because he's destroyed all the remnants of independent press. He can push any line he wishes. And so whatever happens, he will explain it as his victory. I think Zelensky is preparing his country for changing the constitution and dropping the ambition to join NATO which I think is a purely symbolic concession because NATO was not going to admit Ukraine anytime soon anyway. The harder bits will be the territorial stuff. And there, I don't think it's helpful of you and me to give advice on what's reasonable because it's not our politics and it's not our country. And the third demand is for some cultural rights for Russian language broadcasting and Russian speakers in the Southeast, which I understand Ukraine had already passed in its legislation a long time ago. So that should be no problem. What would the neutrality look like? Because it's one thing to concede that Ukraine is not going to become a member of NATO. At the same time, Ukraine will obviously need some kind of 
realistic guarantee that Russia is not just going to restart the war at another point or going to continue to lop off Ukrainian territory in the way it has over the last seven years. Is there some realistic set of arrangements that can guarantee those things? Well, the spokesman of the Kremlin says that they'll be happy with Ukraine being like Austria or Sweden. Well, Sweden has an army that can fight. And actually, it's Swedish-made anti-tank missiles that are hitting Russian armor very effectively. So I think that's something that Ukraine could live with. So you sound very optimistic about a resolution to this conflict. I mean, obviously, it will have inflicted terrible suffering on Ukraine. Obviously, it would have been an incredible waste of human life. But it sounds like the outcome will actually be effectively a real defeat of Russia and a real triumph of Ukraine. What is your outlook for what that would mean in terms of geopolitics, what that would mean for Putin domestically, and what that would mean for the strength of the Western alliance? Of course, we don't know what will happen because as long as Russian forces are in Ukraine, they can mount another offensive and this could all be a ploy and play for time in order to bring up the logistics for the invasion force. So, no, I'm not optimistic. I'm just saying that the fact that the Russians have demanded less than before means that Ukraine has succeeded, I think, beyond almost anybody's expectations so far. But it also shows you that, yet again, there is a solution there for the taking, if only Putin would take it. Except that, you know, I never accepted this argument that he has to invade because Ukraine wants to join NATO. You know, that's just absurd. You don't start a war on the hypothetical possibility that someone might join a military alliance in 10 or 20 years' time. So let's walk us through that for a moment. So the argument from people like John Mearsheimer is that NATO expansion to countries like Poland has provoked Russia, that it went against some guarantees that Western leaders supposedly made to Russia in the early 1990s. So what's the argument against it? The argument against it is that smaller countries also have security interests. And the reason we clamored to join NATO was precisely because Russia was already being threatening. So this is the hole in Merzheimer's argument, as if only great powers existed. But there are other countries in the world too. So what are some of the ways that Russia was threatening to Poland, for example, before NATO expansion? Because that seems to be a pretty effective response. But what did that look like? How do we know that Russia actually seemed to be threatening to its neighbors and perhaps have territorial ambitions even before the supposed Casus Belli was in place? Well, it's because, for example, it has nuclear-capable missiles in the Kaliningrad exclave, and it regularly threatened their use against us. It's because they had already then pursued the genocidal First Chechen War and were claiming to have some kind of particular role in the former Yugoslavia, which, as you remember, after the Stalin-Tito split, was not part of the Soviet sphere of influence. And because of the ideology of um, Tsarist and Soviet expansionism that was alive and kicking in Russia. Um, you say Tsarist and Soviet expansionism, and I've been wondering about how the current attempt to rebuild effectively a kind of Russian empire should inform our understanding of previous Russian history, and particularly our understanding of the Soviet Union. You know, it was easy to see the Soviet Union as something quite different from the Russian Empire because of its radically different ideology. But of course, they had the commonality of trying to control a lot of territory beyond Russia. 
Now that under a third kind of regime form, Russia is trying to build an empire yet again, do you think that should change our interpretation of what the nature of the Soviet Union was? Well, in my part of the world, we thought it a totalitarian uh, tyranny and a form of Russian empire at the same time. You know, Putin loves to re-examine past history, but the hard facts are that Muscovy was a small barbarian principality on the periphery of Europe in the 16th century, and through conquest rather than marriage <laughs> or union, it grew to be the largest state on earth and invaded Poland many times. So we have good reasons to be skeptical about Russia, particularly when in Russian schools and in Russian media, the people are fed this toxic uh, ideology of uh, Russia's right to dominate others. Putin, uh, in his essay of last July, which persuaded me that he's going to invade, blames Lenin for granting the right to secession to um, Soviet republics. But he fails to mention why Lenin made that decision. It was because the Russian Empire, Tsarist Empire, was creaking at the seams. And that was the only way to partially satisfy some parts of the nationalist uh, public opinion in some of those republics. It was bogus because the party of the Soviet Union had overall control. But it was the reason why they were giving Ukraine large territories and even a seat at the United Nations, if you remember, because the Tsarist Empire was already a prison of nation and Lenin was trying to square the circle. So what does that imply for the coming decades? I mean, let's go with your optimistic scenario for a moment. And I realize you're not predicting it. It's just one of the scenarios we're hoping for. There is a negotiated settlement over Ukraine one that is a relative success for Ukraine and that both sides can live with for now. But that ideology stays in place. Putin likely stays in place. And the long history of Russian empire building continues to influence its outlook on foreign policy. What does that mean for Russia's role in the world? What does that mean for how other countries should deal and can deal with Russia in the coming decades? Look, uh, Putin invaded Ukraine because he wants Ukraine as part of a new empire, but also because he wanted to prevent Ukraine from becoming a successful Europeanizing democracy. And this he has done for an understandable reason. He correctly fears that if Ukraine becomes successful and increasingly integrated with the West, the people of Russia will eventually want the same. So my prediction is that if Ukraine succeeds, and I define that by defending its democracy and uh, keeping the great majority of its territory and getting rid of Russian troops from its soil, then I think eventually Putinism will fail and we will have uh, some kind of new opening in Russia. One of the surprises to me of the last weeks has been the strength of the resistance in Ukraine. But perhaps an equally big surprise has been the fact that Europe has actually woken up to the threat Putin poses and has imposed sanctions that go much beyond what they've done in the last years and go much beyond what I would have expected, even as a result of a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Take us as a member of the European Parliament inside that very rapid evolution. What made it possible and how likely do you think it is that this constitutes a real change 
of direction that is sustainable, as opposed to a wartime rush of solidarity that'll start to fall apart as soon as there is, for example, negotiated settlement over Ukraine. I think Putin managed to genuinely shock those who were not Russia watchers because his actions resembled so much what the Chancellor of Germany in the 1930s did. You know, politics is very often a sort of competition of parallels. I had this long-standing discussion with my colleague Steinmeier, the foreign minister and now president of Germany. Who, as I understand it, has been to your home, which you're recording from right now. Indeed. So Frank Walter's argument was, we mustn't go prematurely into a wholesale deterrence and isolation of Russia because we don't want to repeat an accidental war like in 1914. And my argument has been, look, this guy is telling us what he wants to do, like um, previous dictator in the 1930s. We should take this seriously. We should take it at his word, and we must not encourage him. We have to put up resistance to him in good time. And I think by bombing Ukraine, by invading Ukraine, Putin persuaded even the Germans that the second paradigm is correct. And that's how he lost Germany. Germany was, on the ethical level and a kind of sociological and political level, mostly shared our assessment of Putinism. What they didn't share with us was what to do about it, because they thought, well, you know, we have a stable relationship, there is business, surely they won't be so crazy as to upset all that. And then Putin did do the unthinkable. So we now have a different paradigm, even if uh, Putin uh, withdraws from Ukraine, because the world in which the Germans thought they were living, rules-based order, negotiations, eternal peace, and all that, clearly doesn't exist anymore. So I would like to agree with you, but I'm not quite sure I do yet. So let me state the most skeptical argument, and I'd love to hear your response. You know, there was a lot of what Germans call Putin Verstehe. A lot of people within Germany who tried to make excuses for Putin, who treated him a little bit like a schoolyard bully who has a difficult home life, and if only we were nice to him and made him feel understood, he would suddenly turn out to be a lovely guy. And that certainly, I think, is one of the things that is at play when somebody like Steinmeier wants to compare the situation to 1914 rather than, say, to 1938 or 1939. But I think there's other reasons, too. I think that there is a greater self-confidence in the safety and security of Germany than Polish politicians can afford to have, given their different histories, the different sizes of the countries and the different geographical locations. I think that there is a deep commitment to prolonging the holiday from history as long as it is in any way feasible, even once the sun is down and it has gotten very cold, we can stay and brave it out on the beach pretending that it's still 5 p.m. and lovely sunshine. And there are deep economic interests that tie the country to Russia, which are perhaps being weakened now. So, you know, I certainly think that the changes which Olaf Scholz announced in terms of spending more money on the military are significant. I certainly think that there's a deep sentiment of solidarity with Ukraine, which moved and surprised me. But I do still worry that if there was some kind of negotiated settlement with Russia, if for a few years there was no new provocation from Putin, 
German politics would backslide quite quickly to shouldn't we really be spending this money on other things rather than the military? Shouldn't we be rekindling relationships with Putin? Hasn't he learned his lesson? And so on and so forth. So I guess I would like to hear how you assess that aspect of German politics and politics of other European nations and what you think the country should in fact do over the next decades. I would even back your argument with a further argument that until about 2010, 2011, it was possible to think that Russia would come on some kind of trajectory that approaches ours. Remember, we were negotiating an association agreement with Russia. Putin came to Gdańsk in 2008 to recognize the European paradigm of the Second World War. In 2010, he was the first leader of Russia to visit Katyn. Not a small thing. And it all went down after the protests in Moscow against his return to the presidency. I think that was the pivotal moment. And yes, you're right that some people will want to go back to businesses before. I don't think it will work. I mean, if Putin were brought down quickly, that could help. But I think those German generals who've been testifying to the depths of German disarmament will not be silenced anymore. And I think the Germans got a real scare. And therefore, some rearmament at least will happen. So one of the interesting observations of the last weeks has been that Everybody on the world stage essentially assumed that Europe would never be a significant military power capable of acting in concert. But economically, Europe obviously has been and will continue to be a major force in the world. In terms of soft power, it will continue to be influential. But when you're thinking about the future balance of power between authoritarian countries like China and Russia on the one side and democracies like the United States, Europe doesn't weigh very heavily because of its regular spending on the military, because of the fact that European countries are unlikely to agree on a course of action and so on and so forth. And so I've heard the observation from a number of people in the last weeks that suddenly Europe seems to be awakening as a superpower and that this will fundamentally change the shape of geopolitics in the next decades. Do you think that this war in Ukraine and the relatively unified European response to it shows that in a real crisis in future, Europe is likely to be by the side of other Western nations and is likely to be a very significant force? And if so, what do Europeans have to do to make that happen? Or is that premature? Well, in the current crisis, Germany and France completely sidelined Europe's high representative for foreign policy. And He had that embarrassing trip to Moscow, and then his role in the MiG-29s affair was not happy. So that doesn't encourage me to think that Europe is becoming strategic. And on European defense, I'm a strong advocate, but I'll believe it when I see it. It would make sense, particularly in the context of German rearmament, because this is me warning my German friends. The very people who are now encouraging Germany the most to rearm will be the first to criticize them when the Germans actually do it, because all the old fears will come back to the fore. 
So it would be in Germany's interest to put its rearmament in a European context and in a European decision-making about the use of European armed forces, including the German armed force, so as to make this German and European rearmament safe for Europe and for Germany. It's difficult to conceive all that because it would uh, require more compromises on sovereignty and some people even tell me changes to the German constitution. But it might still be a good idea. I guess there's two different questions here, though, right? One is whether the European Union as an actor is going to be central to this. The other is whether Europe as a continent is going to be a major player on the world stage. I think you've just inadvertently made an argument for the latter over the former, which is to say that clearly in this crisis on Ukraine, Europe has emerged as a very important player, both through supplies of weapons to Ukraine, which were difficult to imagine up to about a month ago, and through its leading role in imposing sanctions on Russia. But as you're saying, a lot of this has happened in a bilateral form or coordinated actions of individual nations rather than through the formal mechanisms of the European Union. So actually, is it imaginable that Europe will emerge as a real force, even though, as Henry Kissinger famously complained, you know, there's not one telephone number you can call in Europe, and the EU will continue to sort of blunder a little bit in its foreign policy, or at least not have a very strong voice in its foreign policy, but be supplanted by many of the member states of the European Union acting in concert? Well, remember, if Europe has any seat of power, the European Union, it is the European Council. It is the member states, particularly on issues to do with defense, security, intelligence. The European Union institutions are, in fact, quite weak. They can only do what member states will let them do. And in this case, and for quite a while, the member states have not even fulfilled the Lisbon Treaty which is actually very strong on how we should be carrying out our foreign policy in common and what strong ambitions we have for a joint defense policy. But the treaty is not being observed. So a new commitment to what's already been agreed could go a long way. Another interesting argument that I've heard in the last few days is people saying that the war might the beginning of the end of populism, that similarly to the pandemic, it might make people recognize the importance of responsible political leadership and make some of the authoritarian populists who are now rising in European countries who are in power in places like Hungary and Poland less appealing. On the other hand, in places like Poland, it may of course give a rally around the flag effect, a boon to the incumbents. What do you think the future of embattled European democracies like Poland is and how might it be influenced or changed by the events of the last month? I agree with you that it will have an effect. Populism has roots in many things, including frivolity. You know, electorates were voting for outlandish politicians in the UK, in the United States and elsewhere out of a sense that nothing can go wrong and therefore we can have these weird individuals. And now we know that things can go very badly wrong and we need uh, steadier hands. 
And so I'm fascinated by the fact that there seems to be a revival of the Reaganite wing of the Republican Party because Trump so thoroughly discredited himself in his attitude to Putin and to Ukraine. And what's quite amusing is that if you talk to the Democrats in Washington, they say that that's what we want. What's wrong with the party of Reagan? Which is not exactly what they were saying when Reagan was still alive, is it? Well, let's talk about the United States and perhaps then let's talk about Central Europe. So, you know, in the United States, it's certainly true that it has allowed a bunch of Republicans who are really scared of Trump's hold over public opinion and scared of Trump's hold over the party to cosplay as good old fashioned Reaganites or perhaps to cosplay as inheritors of John McCain for a few weeks. And certainly public opinion, even within the Republican electorate, is very strongly on the side of Ukraine, and Trump is out of step with that. I guess I'm not sure that this is going to influence the primary elections in 2024 very strongly. It seems rather to be an opportunity for Republican politicians to signal, hey, this is what we actually believe, you know, if Trump wasn't around and if our electorate hasn't gone a little bit loopy, you know, we would love to go back to 2012 and act like Mitt Romney did. But, you know, the moment that the political energy is going to move away from this foreign policy crisis to domestic issues, as most likely it will, unless we get into a really disastrous escalation, they are probably going to feel constrained to parrot Trump's line again. So do you think that this geopolitical crisis war in Ukraine is actually likely to change, for example, the trajectory of the Republican primaries in such a way that a neo-Reaganite Republican will become the party's nominee? You know more about internal U.S. politics than I, but I couldn't help noticing that um, Ukraine, after China, has become perhaps the only other issue that um, it's legitimate for Democrats and Republicans to agree with each other. And the condemnation of Putin, including calling him a war criminal, I think passed unanimously. When did you last have uh, such a vote in Congress? And of course, if you have bipartisanship, that takes oxygen away from the ideological wings, from the populists. So I think this is having some effect. What about Poland? On the one hand, this war might remind the Polish population of a need to have competent and responsible political leadership and the Law and Justice Party for paranoid about Russia in certain ways has also not exactly been focused on deepening its relationship with Western powers that would allow Poland to protect itself against Russia better. On the other hand, it does seem as though the sense of being threatened from the outside often leads to a rallying around the flag effect. I haven't seen any recent polls. You probably have. So I don't know whether that's already visible in the polls of the last few weeks. The government suddenly looks a lot less isolated from other European and Western nations than it did in the last months and years. Indeed, there may be a temptation within European capitals to make nice with Warsaw because very real and important concerns that they have about rule of law and democracy in Poland seem perhaps less pressing than having a united front against Putin and an ability to coordinate on assisting Ukraine. So is this more of an opportunity or more of a threat to the current Polish government? All these tendencies are there. 
But in addition, there's been a split in the ruling establishment. The president, who previously vetoed a law that would have uh, expropriated uh, the last independent TV station and simultaneously the largest American investment in Poland, has clearly gone to the center now. He made a speech in Parliament last week uh, in which he stressed that EU membership is as important for Poland as NATO membership, which is anathema to the ruling party. So there will now also be tendencies to make peace with the European Union. And there are conflicting tendencies. On the one hand, the ruling party has always been verbally anti-Putinist, while simultaneously aping some of Putin's political ideas. But they were seen to be taking us away from the Western mainstream. And it's now perceived that being firmly anchored in the West is a more secure place to be in for Poland. There are no significant changes to the opinion polls. The fissures in Polish society are very deep. But it's an opportunity for the ruling party to return to the fold of the Western civilization. But its leader, Kaczynski, may imagine that he can do a Franco or Salazar, namely have a national Catholic dictatorship with a blessing from Washington, which is why it's so important that if and when President Biden comes to Warsaw next week, as is expected, he sends a double message. A, Poland is not alone and NATO territory will be defended, but B, Putinist ideas and the methods must be dropped forthwith. Let me ask you a couple of questions about sanctions. I think there's a very strong and urgent moral case for all or most of the sanctions that we have imposed on Russia. It is the most effective way to come to the assistance of Ukraine, to weaken Putin's ability to go on further military adventures and perhaps to weaken his domestic standing as well. That involves suffering for many ordinary Russians, which is sadly unavoidable at this point, given the nature of our political leaders. And I think while morally costly, it is morally justifiable. We've also seen some tendencies within Western countries to vilify Russian culture. We've seen some silly attempts to cancel courses on Dostoevsky and other Russian literary figures. We've seen, you know, the provider of some educational resources take off Russian language courses from the online offerings. You know, some of that is really just silly excesses, and I don't want to overstate the extent of it. But there is a real question about how far do you go, for example, in pressuring prominent Russian individuals who don't have especially strong ties to the regime, who are not representing the country in an official capacity as a national sports team might be, to take a very active stance against Ukraine in ways that might put them at risk or might put their family back in Russia at risk. So where do we draw the line? What kind of forms of sanctions do you think are right and appropriate? Where does it cross the line into a form of Russophobia that is morally wrong and probably politically counterproductive? Well, as regards suffering, uh, you know, being deprived of an iPad or not being able to go for coffee to Starbucks or to poison yourself with McDonald's, I wouldn't exactly call it suffering. And those are individual decisions by these companies. Russia has become a net exporter of food, so there's not going to be real suffering. 
And you mentioned Dostoevsky. Well, let's look at that. Dostoevsky was a Russian imperialist and a crazy person. And when Putin talks about denazification of Ukraine, he just means de-Westernization. But the country that really does need de-radicalization and whose people, whose curricula and whose media need changing so that they stop poisoning minds with imperialist ideology is the Russian school and Russian universities and Russian media. This, as you know, is very deeply ingrained since at least the 19th century. And I'm sure you, along with many of our listeners, have had the experience of talking to apparently reasonable Russians who suddenly talk about their rights to dominate other nations. Russia needs to be de-radicalized. You know, we had this process in Poland during our reset with Russia of establishing the facts of our difficult history, and it worked very well. And we produced a book of Polish and Russian historians' essays. But this work needs to be transmitted into the Russian school books so that we break this chain of generations being brought up to build or rebuild uh, an empire. And as regards ideologists and propagandists of what Putin is doing, I'm afraid I'm in favor of sanctioning them. I have personally moved in the European Parliament to sanction Mr. Mikhaikov, the director, who published a pro-invasion YouTube documentary on the day of the invasion. Cyril, the head of the Russian Orthodox Church, who blessed the invading tanks and proclaimed that uh, Putin is trying to save humanity from gay parades. And uh, the leaders of uh, Russian state media who are threatening us with nuclear war and with broadening hostilities. All these people have declared themselves to be enemies of peace and of the Western civilization. And I personally believe they should spend their holidays in Vorkuta and Kolyma rather than in the south of France. So I completely agree when it comes to people who are actively complicit with the invasion, people who have the regime and the connections to Putin to thank for most of their wealth, uh, the oligarchs, and even people like the head of the Orthodox Church who blessed the invasion in that kind of way. All of that I agree with. I suppose I'm wondering how we should think about people like Alexander Malofeyev, who's a young Russian pianist who actually has spoken out against the Ukrainian invasion in a relatively robust manner, whose performance was cancelled by the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. Again, I don't think this is the most important issue, but I'm just trying to figure out where do we draw the line? You know, when you're talking about the person who publishes the pro-invasion documentary on the day of the invasion, that's an easy case. But where do we draw the line from putting real pressure on Russia and Russia's leadership, showing that if you invade another country, you're not part of the world in which you can go around and have nice holidays and so on, but avoiding punishing individuals who are actually being relatively brave and avoiding giving the impression that we're in enmity with Russian culture as a whole. No, of course we shouldn't be. I will answer you in the uh, words of Comrade Stalin at the height of collectivization. Some comrades are giddy with success. We mustn't overdo it, particularly given the fact that actually the attitudes of the people of Russia are one of the centers of gravity of this conflict. You know, we are not reaching to the Russian people. 
with what's happening in Ukraine, but we must hope that if they learn the true cruelty of what the Russian army is doing it, then they might change their attitude. Of course, they live under media monopoly, there are horrific punishments for telling the truth, but telephone links are not cut with Ukraine. And so we need to get those Russian speakers in the Baltic states, in Ukraine above all, to talk to their acquaintances and relatives in Russia and to tell them like it is. You know, one of the weirdest and most depressing pieces of news about this conflict is when children call their parents in Russia under bombardment and their parents don't believe them because they believe in the propaganda. We need to get the message to the Russian people and, of course, punishing Russian culture would be counterproductive. But uh, let me just finish with one sentence. Lavrov and the Russian foreign ministry discovered that as a result of the invasion, there is much Russophobia in the world. Well, I have this to say. Phobia means fear. And of course, people are afraid of Russia when Russia does crazy things. Another question I've had and that's become more relevant as a result of your relative optimism for negotiated settlement is the length of the sanctions. Is this a regime of economic isolation where we should keep up essentially until Putin is no longer the dictator of Russia, until you know Russia gives back Crimea, or should an end to sanctions or a softening of sanctions be on the negotiating table? when we're trying to reach a settlement? What actually, from your perspective, is the right set of conditions on when some of the sanctions would be lifted? Some sanctions should be permanent. The fact that we should stop making money out of oligarchs who had stolen the money from the Russian people, that should be the new normal. We should liquidate the tax havens and the anonymous companies the very concept of them that has allowed those people to function in the West. That should be liquidated forever. We don't need these vehicles. Their only function is to avoid taxes and hide ill-gotten gains. The freeze of Russian central bank reserves, I don't believe, should be reversed either because uh, Ukraine will have a very good claim for reparations and will need the money to rebuild itself if there is a cessation of hostilities. And the money that was going to be Putin's war chest should be Ukraine's uh, reconstruction fund. I could go on. You've invited a number of refugees from Ukraine into your home in Poland. What are some things that listeners to this podcast can concretely do to help Ukraine? Well, there are foundations, including in Poland, I can recommend a very good one called the Polish Humanitarian Action which started with deliveries to besieged Sarajevo back in the 1990s, and which is the largest and best Polish foundation. It has a webpage in English, and you can contribute there, both for the refugees in Poland and for helping people inside Ukraine. Poland has rallied round because we feel that this is our war, that the Ukrainians are defending also our borders, and the least we could do is to protect their women and children. But of course, we don't have a million spare places at schools or at uh, hospitals. But I think the European Union will help us with that. The most important thing to be done is to help Ukraine to win this. And Ukraine is not without chances. 
So the best thing is to support those congressmen and senators who demand more military assistance to Ukraine and to the eastern flank of NATO. Alex Sikorsky, thank you for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to The Good Fight. Lots of listeners have been spreading the word about the show. If you too have been enjoying the podcast, please be like, rate the show on iTunes, tell your friends all about it, share it on Facebook or Twitter. And finally, please make suggestions for great guests or comments about the show to goodfightpod at gmail.com. That's goodfightpod at gmail.com. This recording carries a Creative Commons 4.0 international license. Thanks to Silent Partner for their song, Chess Pieces. 